But good morning. So it is really good to be up here looking at you all. And I say welcome to those tens of tens of people watching online. I do have two internet fans that are watching. They're my granddaughters. <laughs> so I've got to say, hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Tappy. It's me, Pop. <laughs> That's it. Um, so we are still really fresh into our return to in-person services at Wandarma Center. And gratitude for this place and this time together, it flows now without any effort. And I know this is a, a sincere feeling because I can see it on your faces. Um, I just hope, well, I, I hope it continues for one year and two years and many years that we come to, um, we come here to share this Dharma given to us by Sodasam, a great sage and saint. This is a gift, and it's our true refuge. So I have a story to tell today, and after the service, it would be interesting to know if you thought it was good or, or if it had a happy or sad ending. But really, the only important thing for me now is to tell it truthfully without editing, just as it happened. So here goes. On or around June 15th of this year, a great tree fell on our property. It happened sometime in the early morning hours. My guess is around 3.30, when strange things often happen. No one heard the tree fall, even though there were five of us sleeping within 25 yards of it. There wasn't a breath of wind that night, and I imagine it toppled really slowly, just like it was lying down for a rest. The next morning, when I came downstairs to make coffee, the sight of it, horizontal, hit me in the chest like a kick. I was horrified. And the open sky that the tree used to occupy, that just added to my misery. Let me back up just a little bit, because I knew this tree intimately. Over 44 years ago, I planted it as a six-foot-tall, one-inch diameter sapling. The occasion was the birth of our first child on June 2nd, 1977. My wife and I placed her and Jonathan, my son's placenta, under the willow tree as fertilizer. A year and a half later, when we moved to our new house, it came with us, and I transplanted it, and it prospered. So three weeks after we moved in, we found out that we needed a new septic system. There were no house inspections back then. It was, this was the 70s. Um, and then because the, the, the bulldozer was already there, we had a guy dig a pond in the swampy area below the house and near the tree. And it loved that water. Willows love water. So remember that pond. 
because it's going to come back later in the story. So over the uh, intervening years, our family grew and the willow kept pace. It reached at least three feet in diameter and it was taller than this meditation hall with perfectly trailing you know, willow uh, leaves all the way to the ground. It outlasted hurricanes and, rice and ice storms, and it lost branches, and it grew back new ones. I really thought it would live forever. I say this to underscore the shock that I felt seeing it on the ground. So this is when I hoped the Dharma lessons would kick in. But for three or four days, nothing happened. Just more horror and more loss. In fact, it got worse. I reasoned that if this tree was planted at the time of my first son's birth, and there it was lying on the ground, then maybe my time is close at hand as well. This was not a consoling thought. I didn't count this as a Dharma lesson. And then I... Um, then, then it even got more crazy. I wondered if we could somehow winch the tree back into place. Three-foot diameter tree, I'm thinking. Maybe we could put a come-along on it and winch it back into place. Or maybe we needed a sky hook. That's what we needed. So I was, I was now borderline delusional. But I have been able to study mind practice here at Juan Dharma Center for nine years now. And I reached deep into the bag of tools that are detailed in our scripture to try to see if, if I could see this disaster in a new way. So the first thing I did was to just sit with the tree in silence, in meditation. Conveniently, there's a marble bench that's right near the base of the trunk and where the ashes of both my parents are buried. And the tree did not hit it when it fell. And this did give me some space and solace just to sit there. But then I looked closer at the tree, and I realized that the tree did not really know yet that it was dead or dying. Or it knew it was dying, it knew something happened. But only half of the roots were exposed. The other half of the roots were still in the ground, and the leaves were still really bright green and actually growing. This was not so comforting, I thought. The next thing I tried to do after the sitting and the, and the watching, I tried to think of the tree's death as a mind journal. And I used the equation that Reverend Park uh, teaches us every Saturday morning in his class. And it goes like this, and the, these, these are the founding master's words, and we will be repeating them again later at the end of the, of the service. He said, the mind is originally free from disturbance. However, disturbances arise in response to sensory conditions. Let us restore the equanimity of our true nature by letting go of those disturbances. When I first read this years ago, it didn't seem earth-shaking at first, but I found that it gives you a starting point to go forward. 
so that the first rule of mind journaling is always to identify your original, your original free mind. And in, especially in regard to this particular sensory condition, this challenging situation, like your favorite tree falling. You don't have to get all Zen and abstract during this phase. You just keep it simple and specific. And I realized that if I was being honest, until that morning, I had not thought much about the willow tree for a long time. It wasn't in my mind. It was just there, and my mind was neutral toward it. Or you could say my mind was empty toward it. Then after it fell, it absolutely filled my mind for the next four days, just like that. It wasn't there, then it was all I could think about. So my original mind was simply the mind I had before the tree fell. That's all. And you start there and realize that this calamity has not been part of your life forever. It just happened. And then the second rule of mind journaling is to name those feelings that arise at that event. And that is not difficult in this case. I felt grief, sorrow, a dark foreboding about my own mortality, and I was slightly delusional. That's, those are my feelings that were going on. And then the third stage, the third and final stage of mind journaling is to try to return to your original or true mind or original nature or true mind. We have so many words for it. And Sodasan calls this letting go. And I just saw we will have a retreat. Is it November? And the title of that is Letting Go. This is a big concept in Wan Buddhism and all Buddhism. And I think that all or mo almost all wisdom traditions that I know of, they have a word for this movement. We call it surrender or finding the grace of God or acceptance or merely pausing. All the same thing. Reverend Grace Song, who will be teaching that retreat on, uh, on letting go, she has a word for it, or a term for it. She says, let your mind tumble the situation around. It's a beautiful concept. It creates space. It creates, you can see new things. And the key is to neither suppress your feelings about the situation, nor to let them overwhelm you. And all that Sotasan asks us to do is to stay open and aware of what new things might come into the world. He says, don't close off. Don't go into hiding. Don't act reflexively like you did a thousand times before. Sounds easy, right? Nah, not so easy. And this phase is always the most challenging, and I was really stuck. This was a big sensory condition for me. I love that tree, and I clearly didn't want to let go of my grieving. Then on day four, or maybe day five, I began to look at the tree even more closely. I saw that the roots that on the upturned side that had come up out of the ground after the tree fell 
they were ridiculously small. They reminded me of the arms of a Tyrannosaurus Rex, like appendages. They were tiny. They were, they were this big, and the tree is three feet in diameter. So I began to wonder, how did this huge tree stay upright for so long with such a puny root system? You know, I, I do have an understanding of the laws of cause and effect. We all do. And in my mind, I thought, tall tree, weak roots equals collapse. It's like simple physics. And this was a start. This was a start like, wow, maybe it was the tree's time. I'm starting to think that. And then three weeks later after this, a team of tree professionals were able to drive onto our lawn finally because the incredible amount of rain that loosened the roots of the willow tree also prevented them from approaching with any heavy equipment. They were amazing. They finished the job in three hours. And I had, during most of the time, I was in town running errands. And I came back, and the great willow tree was gone. <laughs> it was, and all that remained was a pile of wood chips about eight feet in diameter and about this tall. That was the tree. It was gone. So I, and at that point, I studied the stump that was left where they cut it off. And one half of that stump was rotten. It was, there was, it was, it was like a void. So the tree was only, had a half a trunk. And again, I thought, how did it stay up so long? Not why did it fall over? How did it stay up this time so long? And this gave me more understanding, you know, in truth and cause and effect, and it gave me more acceptance. And then this happened. From the house, after the tree fell, a perfect view of our pond reemerged. Remember the pond? <laughs> so for 25 years at least, that pond had been totally obscured by the great tree. You couldn't see it from the house. You had to go and walk around the tree to get to the pond. But from the kitchen, dining room, you, couldn't ever, you didn't even know a pond was there. That's how, that's how full the tree was. So this now became a whole new sensory condition, the exposure of our pond. While the tree falling was pure horror, this new site of the pond could have gone either way. You could call it a 50-50 or a 60-40 proposition. I saw the pond. It had been disregarded for all of those 25 years, or almost all of them. Cattails had grown in and taken over 75% of the pond, and milfoil and various pond scums had taken over the rest. So basically, it was almost a swamp again. So given my mood from the tree falling, falling, which was already really dark, I could have taken this as further indication of doom and loss. But instead, I saw it as an opportunity. This was my chance to make the pond beautiful again. I didn't try to make this happen. It just came to me. And I began work the very next day. 
So my question is, was this just luck? This was a 50-50, 60-40 situation. Was this just luck that I saw this opportunity? And I really believe that no, the mind practices that we study here and the habits that we form, they made this possible. So today, um, I'm using mind journaling as an example of spiritual practice because I do it a lot and I like it. However, it is only one of 32 I think 32 different modes or topics that Sodasan describes in our scripture. The exact number is not important. Let's just say he gave us a lot. He gave us many. And he gives us all these possibilities so we can practice at all times. That's the important thing. During times of rest and quiet, say when we come to a retreat at Wandharma Center, we come out of our workaday lives. In the early days of Wan Buddhism, Sodasan used to lead retreats for four weeks, several times a year. Times were different in 1919 or 1923. Times were slower. And during these times of rest and quiet, uh, he listed 11 different practices that we can use that are especially helpful during retreats. We will practice them, I guarantee, at, at Reverend Song's retreat. And then in everyday life, he gives us six items that he called items of heedfulness for, every, for daily practice. When you're working, when you're, in, when you're in your family, you're in your normal life, these are different. And then he gives us six more items to practice when we come to a, to a temple or a church or a synagogue, a place of worship. He calls them items of heedfulness for temple visits. And then on top of that, there's nine, I know these numbers, right? They get, they get a little crazy. But there are nine items, we call them essential dharmas of daily life that we can use at all times. And we will recite them later today. You can read about all of these items found on page 40 to 46 in our canon, very precise and laid out. And then you can take a lot of time to practice them because, they, you know, in the beginning they seem strange, some of them. And others are really familiar, like sitting meditation, chanting meditation, both of which we did today, practicing self-reliance, practicing gratitude, and giving Dharma talks. These are all different topics of study and of practice. They overlap and they reinforce each other. And he gave us all of this variety because he knew that each one of us would gravitate towards certain practices that would fit us. And, and uh, he just wanted to give us the best chance possible for success. And then the other thing that he emphasizes, and this is critical, is that we, we practice with balance from all three categories of, uh, that, of, of practice, which include concentration, like sitting meditation, um, wisdom training, like reading scriptures. There's many more, and we call it choice and action, or, uh, yeah, choice and action, making the right choices, everyday life. So if you recall, um, in, my, in, this, in this example, in addition to writing a mind journal, I also sat with the tree. 
which is um, in meditation. And I inquired into the tree, into the causality of the tree's demise. This was, they call this inquiry. Now, without this balance, I think I'd still be standing in my kitchen today, four months later, moaning about my loss of the tree and bitching about how crappy the pond looked. I'm pretty sure that's where I'd be. And nobody really wants to be a grumpy old man or old woman or young man, young woman. The founding master put this much more eloquently. He said, thus, with this great balance, I have provided perfectly precise guidance regarding your methods of practice so that you may accomplish the great task of transcending the ordinary and entering sagehood as quickly as possible. This was his grand wish for all of us. And he wasn't kidding around. He, mean, he meant this. I've got to add that when you're faced with really terrible scenarios, like your favorite tree falling, or much, much worse things like big financial problems, relationship issues, dire health diagnoses, Mind practice still definitely works. It just takes longer, and you have to use even more tools in the right balance. And then at times, we've all had this, calamities, they just seem to pile on. And then all you can do, I believe, is just hold on with your fingernails and wait. But even then, while you're, if you practice, things are happening beneath the surface. It's still working. You might not know it yet. And then when something new comes along, even if it's not your most desired outcome, you can still grab it and go for a ride. You have to be, have that openness or you'll miss it. You'll miss that new thing. So finally, I just want to say, I know that resurrecting the pond was good choice and action for me. These past months have been amongst the happiest in my life. Each morning, I strap on the waders, you know, fishing waders, and I settle into the water, and I end up covered in mud and pond weeds. That is perhaps not everyone's idea of a good time. But for me, it really works. And I found treasures in that pond. I found a two-inch diameter snapping turtle whose eyes, I'm not kidding, they look just like jewels. I don't know if you ever looked into a turtle's eyes, but they have these lines, they look like jewels. And I watched a kingfisher plummet from 75 feet and spear a sunfish with its beak. This was like two feet away from me. It's like, I couldn't believe it. It's like, did I just see that? And he, I guess I was standing so still. He just, he either didn't see me or, I mean, it's just like, it's like an explosion when they hit the water. So I think the pond looks a lot more beautiful now than it did. The water's clear and open and it's two feet deeper 
because I built a new dam. And I also think that the frogs in the pond wish I had left the hell alone. I really do. They like the cattails. They like the pond scum. It was safety for them. So we're adjusting. You know, we're, but I hope they'll forgive me. But I think you know the important thing is I just didn't give up. I could have. I didn't sink further into despair like we all do, and I have done. So yes, I think that means that this is a pretty happy ending. Thank you for listening, and let's keep practicing because it will be worth it. Thank you.